And George Washington had been managing his family's plantation. He had been serving the Virginia House of Burgesses uh, when the Second Continental Congress unanimously voted to have him lead the Revolutionary Army. He had earlier distinctions with the British Army in the eyes of his contemporaries because he was a commander uh, in the French and Indian War of 1754. He was born a British citizen and therefore a former redcoat serving in their army. And he had, by the 1770s, joined the growing rank of colonists who were dismayed by what they considered to be exploitative policies that Britain was exercising on the colonies in North America compared to the other colonies around the world that the British Empire ruled. And in 1774, Washington joined the Continental Congress as a delegate from Virginia. And the next year, they offered Washington the role of commander-in-chief of the Continental Army. And after accepting that position, Washington sat down and wrote a letter to his wife Martha in which he revealed some of his new concerns about his new role. He He admitted to, quote, his dear Patsy, that he had not sought the post, but felt, quote, it was utterly out of my power to refuse this appointment without exposing my character to such censures as would have reflected dishonor upon myself and given pain to my friends. He expressed uneasiness of leaving her alone, told her he had updated his will, and hoped that he would be home by the fall. He closed the letter with a postscript saying he had found some of the prettiest fabric, but he didn't indicate whether that was intended for him or her, probably her. Uh, And on July 3rd, 1775, Washington officially uh, took command of the poorly trained and undersupplied Continental Army. And after six years of frequent struggle and setbacks, Washington managed to lead the army to key victories despite a track record of losing uh, battles, and Great Britain eventually surrendered in 1781. Of course, due largely to his uh, military uh, fame and, and, and his, his attractive humility, uh, Americans overwhelmingly elected Washington their first president in 1789. But maybe you felt like Washington. I'm sure there's some things you've done in your past, but there's a calling before you, uh, a spiritual calling that you feel you are so under developed for. Um, And that is why God gives us verses and passages like the benediction at the end of Hebrews chapter 13 that tells us that when God calls you to do something, He will supply what is lacking for you to do that. And so let's direct our attention to God's Word this morning. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 20 and 21. I apologize for um, not having the, uh, the screen on. I know some of you, when you sing, have uh, mentioned that it's easier to see the words for you than, than the, the small print in the hymn book. Some of you uh, um, uh, visual learners for the message and following along. So I apologize for that. I had a little glitch. Um, but uh, you got two ears, so do your best here with those. Alright, here we go. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. Josiah read it. Let's read it again. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect or complete in every good work to do His will, working in you that which is well-pleasing, that which gives God pleasure in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Kids, if you've taken English, you might hate it. 
But one of the reasons you take English is so that you can study the Word of God a little bit better. And if you've learned in your early years of elementary English that the basic parts of a sentence are a subject and a verb and a complete thought, um, that will help you understand this passage here. The subject in verse 20 is God. Okay, It's a one long sentence. It's a real long sentence. They also tell you in English don't write really long sentences, but it's another thing. Um, it's a real long sentence. The subject is God, and the verb is in verse 21. It's actually one word. It's translated as three words in our translation. Make you perfect. And it means make equip you to be complete. And that's, that, is, that is the thought of this verse. God, make you complete. God, equip you... Compl- uh, excuse me. God, equip you to be complete to do His will. And that's what this message is about. That's what these verses are about. God will prepare His people to do His will. Whenever we talk about the will of God, it seems kind of ambiguous and gray and and, and cloudy, like it's some kind of unknown thing, like what car do I buy, or um, do I get the uh, sprinkle donut or the chocolate donut? Which which one is God's will? Well, probably both. Um, But uh, the will of God in Scripture... Uh, the emphasis of the will of God is what God has revealed in His Word. And I want to tell you this morning that God will prepare you to do His will because in this passage He gives you confidence about Himself, about His character. So first of all, I want you to notice, first of all, the confidence, the God who is able to. The God who is able to. <clears throat> look, at, look how God is described. The God of peace. The God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. The God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. That's the God who is able to equip you to do His will. So first of all, Roman numeral one is is the confidence, the God who is able to. First of all, God who is the source of peace. God is the source of peace. The idea here is the God who gives peace. The God who gives peace. In the previous verses, 18 and 19, the writer had asked the, the, the audience to pray for him for a specific request. Now he is giving them a benediction he needs, and he is praying for them. And he wants them to know that they can pray to a God who gives peace. If there's one thing that is missing in the world today, it is peace. Now, there's some question about what he's referring to, the God of peace. Is, does that mean that there were tensions among the, the people who were reading this letter? And, or maybe even some tensions between the followers and their leaders, which is why he has to say some strong things to them about their relationship with their overseers and their congregation? That's, that's perhaps. But really, I believe the thrust of this is that he's saying that doing God's will, which is, which is the request that he is, he is, he's praying for, Uh, For them to be able to do. Doing God's will requires recognizing that, first of all, you have peace with God because of the gospel. Because of Jesus. Because of our salvation. Because of redemption provided in Jesus. We have peace with God, Romans 5 tells us. Because of our salvation. And because of that, we can have confidence in God to bring us to our end. And the end, and the situations that we're facing were not peaceful circumstances. Um, some of the things that are described in chapter 10 is they had lost property because of persecution. They had friends and relatives who were in prison. Uh, Some of them had been in prison. 
uh, because of the stands for their, for their faith in Jesus Christ. And they were tempted to go back to the old ways, the way that was easier, the ways that um, still looked forward to Messiah, but did not recognize the Messiah had come in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And the writer here says, friend, you can go to a God who gives peace, who is the source of peace. Some of you have experienced God's peace in your life before. And you can only experience God's peace if you're going through tumultuous situations, can't you? And so it becomes more real. But there have been uh, circumstances and there have been seasons of life where the heat was very hot. Where the difficulty and the pressures of life, maybe financial, maybe from a relationship, uh, uh, maybe from, from health, uh, maybe because of some consequences of sin, uh, you have faced, and, but, but you have found solace, you have found peace, you have found your anxiety melted by the warm arms of the God of peace. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 Paul tells the Thessalonians, the very God of peace sanctify you totally, holy. I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you read that verse, you understand a little bit more of what he means by the God of peace. Being preserved blameless, spotless, uh, uh, the, 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 the image of God before God when he returns. And God has done everything necessary that brings peace. And so the writer wants you to understand that the God who you need to help you do His will is the God who gives peace. Look how else He's described. Make you, excuse me, verse 20. That the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. Second truth about God. God who is the source of resurrection power. Of resurrection power. This is the only place in the book of Hebrews where the resurrection is directly spoken of. It's assumed certainly throughout the whole book. But here it is directly spoken of. And what he is saying is the God who is able to raise what Satan uh, had, 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 had uh, uh, tried to do to the Messiah. I mean, Satan gave it his best shot, didn't he? Uh, he, had, he had not uh, held back but the God of peace raised our Savior from the dead. He vindicated Him. He declared Him to be the one who is resurrected and is accepted. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 20 says, Well, if that power... overcame the greatest enemy... Ephesians chapter 1... And verse 19 says, And what is the exceeding greatness of His power to usward who believe, according to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and set Him at His own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. If the most powerful evil force in the world could not was snuffed out by the resurrection of Jesus. Paul says in Ephesians, that same power is in you, 
And when we understand what the writer of Hebrews is saying in chapter 13, verse 20, that God raised Him from the dead, that's the God who is the source of resurrection power. And if so if you are facing uh, difficult circumstances in life, you are facing uh, a fear of God's will, what He requires you to do as a saved, blood-bought believer, then what the writer is saying is, God is the one who is the source of resurrection power. If He's the source of resurrection power, then certainly He can equip you to do as well. And so in this prayer to God to equip us to do His will, if God's power was enough to raise Jesus from the dead, do you think then He can equip you to do His will? Is the understanding. So God who is the source of peace gives us confidence. This is the God who is able to. He's the God who is the source of resurrection power. But thirdly, notice, He's the God who is the source of care. Of care. That great shepherd of the sheep. That great shepherd of the sheep. The shepherd leads, he feeds, he provides, he protects, he cares. Shepherds watch over. Jesus, described as our good shepherd. And in chapter 13, verse 20, that great shepherd of the sheep, he is referring to a Old Testament reference in Isaiah 63, verse 11. And if you understand this, it gives a richness to this, this phrase, the great shepherd of the sheep. Isaiah 63, 11, at the end uh, of the book of Isaiah, says this. Then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people saying, Where is he that brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of the flock? Where is he that put his holy, his holy spirit within him? And what he is saying is this. He's referring to the exodus of Egypt, when Israel was taken out of Egypt. And they were redeemed from their bondage. And, and then uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, when they went through the Red Sea, it was like they were baptized, given a new identity. Um, and then, uh, uh, and then God provides them leaders. He supplies for them what they need. And God had brought these Jewish believers from the dead, and He had joined them with the one who is risen from the dead, their great Shepherd. And this great Shepherd provides care and leadership and oversight necessary for us to do God's will. Remember, in this section, he's, he's, he's addressing faltering, weak sheep. And he is saying that he is a sufficient shepherd. I'd like you to go with me to John chapter 10 and tease this out a little bit more. In Jesus' discourse on being the good shepherd in John chapter 10 and verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And John 10 and verse 16, he says, And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. There's a prediction there. And what has gone on by the time Hebrews is written is that this prediction has happened. Other sheep have come into this fold. And then in verse 27 of John chapter 10, he gives these strong words. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. 
And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. In other words, there is great security when you have a great shepherd. And when you have the greatest shepherd that none will ever supersede, there is unlimited security. There is unlimited care. And if this is the God who is a source of care, this is the God who is called the chief shepherd in 1 Peter 5, and 1 Peter 5, 7, just a few verses later, says, cast all your cares upon Him, for He cares for you, then this is the God who you can trust to do His will and equip you to do His will. So He is a source of care. And fourthly, this is the God who is a source of faithfulness. Hebrews 13, the end of verse 20 says, Through the blood of the everlasting or the eternal covenant. Eternal, or the eternal covenant. God is the source of faithfulness. This is, this, is, this is what Jesus said at the Last Supper when He says, This is the new covenant in My blood. I'm ratifying this in My blood. I'm writing this with blood ink from My own body, He says. I will do this. I will give you a new heart. I will put my spirit within you. I will give you forgiveness of sins. I will empower you to do this. The new covenant. And he's spoken about that in Hebrews chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 9 through 10. God, who has pledged his character, says, I will do this. I will put my spirit within you. I will carve out your stony heart and put within it a heart that is moldable to my will. God who is a source of faithfulness. You see, when the Father raised Jesus from the dead, it was proof that that blood sacrifice was vindicated. That it was accepted by the loving Father. Vindicated and confirmed by God. Paul talks about this in Romans. So Christ's blood sacrifice at the cross was effective. It was powerful. It provides forgiveness of sins. It provides a new heart because of a new covenant. And this new covenant is never to be replaced. Moses' covenant was replaced, wasn't it? This new covenant is never to be replaced. This is an eternal covenant. And it shows us that God is faithful. And so the writer, his prayer here is addressed to a faithful God because His great redeeming work was accomplished through the blood of the eternal covenant. He's pledged Himself in love Pardon our sins and to meet our needs. This is a covenant God. He is bound to His people. He is bound to those who believe in such a strong and eternal relationship. He is always true to His word. And He offers that to those who do not believe to come to Him. He has completed His promise. And this is the God who is faithful. Now all this is to set up for you a confidence in God who then is able to do the task, the request, here, the need that is asked for. So secondly, the, the request, the need that is asked for. Look in verse 21. <clears throat> the God of peace make you perfect or complete in every good work to do His will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the need that is asked for. The, the benediction, the prayer for this people is to cause us to think and say, okay, if we've been redeemed, what is our salvation for? What is it for? 
Is it for eternal life after? Yes. But that eternal life also begins now. Because Jesus is eternal life. Jesus is in us. And Jesus has work for us to do. God is not only concerned about our eternal destination. But he has also saved us for a purpose on this earth right now. We are saved to serve. So what is your salvation for? This verse answers that question. That the God of peace makes you complete in every good work to do His will. That's what your salvation is for. Um, uh, We have believed a lie many times that God has saved us us and then, then it's all up to us. No, He is actively working. His salvation was so valuable, it was so precious... It cost his son his life. It is so precious that he's actively working to transform you to do his will. And he does that not on our, he doesn't leave that on, uh, to us on our own. And said, in fact, in, in the upper room before he died, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will give you my spirit. He hands us the tools. Yes, but he doesn't just leave us. He hands us the tools and He continues to work in us to prepare us to engage in what He wants us to do with the tools. Um, Philippians 2.13 helps us understand this a little bit better. When Paul says to the Philippians, reminding them of the, of the, of the very difficult task of unity in the church and partnership for the sake of the gospel. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, after he has, he has unfolded this great creed of Jesus, who left heaven's glories, became a man, became his servant, died the death of the cross, because he was obedient, and then began his, 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 his eternal ascent. He says in Philippians 2.13, For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. There is a partnership here. There is a reliance upon God's power to do what is needed with the tools that he has given us. He hands us the tools and He works in us to prepare us to engage in what He wants us to do with His task. That phrase there in chapter 13, verse 21, make you perfect, is the translation of one Greek word. It's, it's, a, it's an unfamiliar word to us, but it was familiar to people who received this letter. Um, to doctors, it meant to, to mend a bone that was broken. All right, To make something that was broken now, now whole again. Uh, to fishermen, it meant to mend a broken net, such as in Matthew 4, verse 12, where that word is used. To sailors, it meant to outfit a ship for the voyage. In other words, you see a kind of a pattern here, to get something to where it needs to be, right? To soldiers, it meant to equip an army for battle. And that's kind of the, the thing here. George Washington, little by little, was equipped to do the work that he was told to do, which was eventually become President of the United States. But it happened. It unfolded. It, 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 he, he equips us. God equips us to do His work. And it's the idea of, of, a, of a continual process of being able to do more and more of what God requires us to do. Because God, when He requires us to do His will, He never shortchanges us with what is necessary to do it. The question is, how does He equip us? Well, when you trace the word that is used here through the New Testament here, the word translated make you perfect or equip you to be complete, you can discover that there are tools that God uses to mature and to equip his children. Go with me to 2 Timothy, please. 
I'm going to show you some of these tools he uses. Same word is used in each of these passages. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, perfect, thoroughly furnished, that's the word there, unto all good works. So what is the tool that God provides? Obviously, it's Sunday school answer you learned as a little kid. Here, it's the Bible, right? The Word of God. How does the Word of God do that? Because it changes, it renews our minds from simple patterns of thinking and simple ways of living to being in line with God's will and His purpose for our salvation. What's another tool that He gives us? Well, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 10. It's another interesting tool here that He gives to equip us. Paul wasn't able to see the Thessalonians and he knew that there were things that were lacking in their faith. So what do you do if you can't see them? Well, you can write them a letter and hope that gets to them. Or you can talk to the God we talked about who we can have confidence in, who is omnipresent, who is all-powerful and can minister all around the world all at the same time. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 10. Night and day, praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might what? Perfect. There's that idea, a complete, equip, that which is lacking in your faith. Prayer. Prayer. Sunday school answer again, right? Bible, prayer. Um, but it is a Sunday school answer because it is the basis of our faith, isn't it? The Word of God equips us to do His Word. As we understand more and more of God's plan for His churches and for our lives and how our families are to be ordered around that, to, to reach the nations for the gospel, to give glory to God, to show the beauty of Christ, to embody Christ in our community, Word of God has got to be key to that. Prayer has got to be key for that, to make up for what, for what is lacking. And to ask God, okay, here's what I learned from your Word. Now will you do this? And do you know what else? Because sometimes we just kind of leave it there, those two things. We make it very individual, don't we? We like to keep things individual and private because uh, it's uncomfortable uh, to have other people speaking into our lives sometimes because there's some things that uh, need to be rough uh, sanded off of us. But God uses the church community to do that as well. And that word is also used in the church community. Go to Ephesians 4. The fellowship of the local church is another tool that God uses to mature and equip his children. Ephesians 4 and verse 11 and 12. And he gave some apostles and some prophets, some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for what? For the perfecting. That's the word right there. The equipping. Uh, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Basically, to equip, he's given these people to equip the church to do the work of the ministry. That's another tool. It's another tool. And that's all we are, we're tools. <laughs> um, he also uses not only the church leadership, but he uses individual believers within the body. Yes, you. He uses you to help others be equipped to do God's will. He uses others to equip you to do His will. Galatians Chapter 6 and verse 1. And this again is a, one of the more uncomfortable situations because the context here is someone who is not doing his will, but God uses a believer to equip that person who is out of God's will to do his will. See this in 6.1 of Galatians. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, 
Restore, and that's the word. Restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Help, confront, help someone who has broken their spiritual leg because of a wrong thinking, uh, wrong priorities, uh, sinful ways of living. Uh, Help them to be restored. Help their leg to be broken. Or to be mended that was broken. You know what else he uses? And none of us really like this one. But this is the one that really works the equipping and completing us to the image of Jesus Christ. You know what it is? 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 10. But the God of all grace, who hath called us into his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered for a while, make you perfect. That's the word again. Complete, equipped. Establish, strengthen, settle you. So what is the other tool he uses? It's suffering. It's the one we all hate. Remember being on a sports team and practices? <laughs> Remember the things you liked practice and practice, the scrimmages and stuff? Remember the things you hated? Sprints? The running, the jumping, all that aerobic activity. Did it prepare you to do the work in the game later? It absolutely did. And here is what he says. Suffering is the training of God to equip you to do His will. Why? Because when you suffer, it strips everything else away that is unnecessary, isn't it? It gives you a focus. It puts you in a weak place to depend on this God who is the God of all comfort, God of peace, the great shepherd who cares, uh, the faithful God, etc. And that's what he talks about in Hebrews 12. Well, we've got to ask ourselves, well, what is he equipping us for? What is he making us perfect for? And the answer is, verse 21, in every good work, to do his will. To do his will. To do what is laid out, his plan for believers. To do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight. I'm going to close with this. The third thing here you'll notice is an ambition. An ambition. The purpose that is longed for. Ambition, the purpose that is longed for. What is this all for? Working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. In other words, he is there to be equipped with everything good so that they will do that which honors Him, do His will, which pleases Him, that which is pleasing in His sight, and which glorifies Him to whom be glory. That's the point. That's the goal. God has saved you to glorify Him, which is what His original purpose was in creating you and I, isn't it? And so the ambition is the purpose that is longed for. is for Jesus to be glorified. Jesus to be magnified in my life. And if that doesn't grab you, that God has stooped down into time and He's stooped down into history and space and He has reached out and He has taken sinners and He has redeemed them and He has made them able to more fully display His glory and restore the image of God and through Jesus Christ, the perfect image of God, then you miss the point of your salvation. Notice he says, what is well-pleasing? What is pleasing in his sight? We could put it this way. 
God longs for you to depend on Him because He is worthy of our confidence, worthy of our trust, to make you complete, equip you to do His will so that we can do what brings God pleasure. Have you ever thought about that? That you and I, because of God's grace, are the pleasure of God. He delighted in His Son and we're united with His Son And we are called sons of God. And he delights in us when we reflect his nature. Peter says we are partakers of the divine nature. And he's he's given us exceeding great and precious promises on which to flesh this out. And the guys who were at the retreat, you heard some of those ways that were to flesh this out, right? From Mike Schrock. In a way that you probably never forget. (laughs) But God allows us to bring him pleasure. Doing the pleasure of God means, though, that you have to exercise real faith to walk that out. And that's why chapter 11 and verse 6 says this, But without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he that cometh to God must believe that He is. That's why in this verse He talks about all that God is. And that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. What is a seeking? It's finding out God's will, make you perfect to do His will, so that you overflow in the good works that Ephesians says He has prepared beforehand. In other words, that you participate in the design that He has designed you for in the mission of the church. Which we could make very simple and say, simply, He's asking us to be obedient to God, to love God, and to love people. And as we do this, it brings Him glory. It brings Jesus Christ glory, the end of the verse says. And if it brings Jesus Christ glory, it brings the Father glory. And it brings the Spirit glory. Because it shows the beauty of God's people as God's nature is shining through you as you do the good works He has prepared you to do. What are those good works? That's a whole other message series, isn't it? But here we have the confidence that we have the God who is able to. We have the request, we have the need that is asked for to be made perfect, complete, to do His will. And we have the ambition here, the purpose that is longed for. And if you have the purpose that is longed for, the goal of seeing Jesus glorified in my life, then you're going to want to say, Lord, here's what's lacking in my life. Here's what needs to be added to my life. Here's what needs to be removed. Here's what needs to be put off. Here's what needs to be put on. Here's how my mind needs to be renewed in Your Word. And you're going to say... And you're the only one can do it because you're the God of peace. You're the God who is the source of all peace. You're the God who is the source of, of all care as my great shepherd. You're the God who has all power in you because you showed your power, declared your power, the resurrection of your son. And that power is available for me to do your work. And you are the God who is faithful to your eternal covenant. You have pledged your eternal name to what you promised to do in this in this new covenant of providing forgiveness of sins, a Holy Spirit to to empower you to do this work, and the washing uh, that we needed. And He put all together, and it's a pretty powerful prayer, isn't it? And it's why, in many traditions, um, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20 and 21, is the last thing people hear before they head out the door as a benediction. So let's pray it together.
Lord, because You are the God of peace, the source of all peace, that has provided peace through Your Son. You're a God of all power and has proved that, certainly in creation, but in a greater uh, power of, of, of uh, restoring uh, what was undone by man's sin through the person of Jesus. You are the great God of care. Uh, not only are You mighty and powerful and, and majestic, You walk with stinky sheep and You feed them and You care for us and You lead them. And we thank You for that. And You have pledged Your faithfulness through the blood of the everlasting covenant. And on that basis, Lord, we ask that You make us complete in every good work to do Your will. The things that You know in our lives need to be eliminated because they do not reflect the divine nature that You imparted to us. We ask that You would remove. And the things in our lives that You have called us to, we ask that they would be put on as we we are renewed in Your Word. We are equipped in these different tools we talked about in prayer and with our church community and through suffering. And Lord, in all this, our minds say we want You to be glorified and our hearts sometimes know the cost of it. So that's why we say You know better. You know what is best. And that's why we have confidence in the God who is able to. And we utter this request. Lord, make us complete to do your will. So this morning what we're really asking is for our sanctification, our walk with you, our reflection of your image to increase today. So that we can be a community of people who shine out as lights to this world. In a crooked and a perverted world that shines as distinct in who we are and how we represent you. Who loves without strings attached. Who walks in wisdom. uh, Who is not of the world but is sent into the world. Who has been given the light of life that lights all men. And may what you desire to do through us be accomplished for your renown, for your name, for your fame. And may the whole earth be filled with your glory through your church as we are filled with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.